Well, good morning. If we've never met before, my name is Chris Thayer, and I'm our pastor of discipleship. So excited to be here with you all this morning as we continue our sermon series titled Out of Step. If you have your Bibles with you, that's great. You can go ahead and open them up to Daniel chapter 4. If you don't have your Bibles with you, that's okay. Whether you're connecting with us online or in person, the words will be up on the screen at just the right time because we find it so incredibly important that you engage with the Bible. And speaking of the Bible, there's a couple of things that we like to remind ourselves of every week. And the first one is this, even though this looks like a book, it's actually not a book. It's a library. It's a collection of 66 different books written by a number of different authors over a long period of time. And perhaps most importantly, it's written in different writing styles. And when we're in the section of Daniel that we're in today, the first half of the book of Daniel, we're in a section of the library that's devoted to ancient history. One of the other things that we like to remind ourselves of every week, and you might not believe this yet, and that's okay. We simply want to let you know where we stand, and that's that we believe that unlike any other book or any other library in the world, that this one is uniquely inspired and eternal and true. And so whenever we read it together, we do this sort of odd thing where we lift it up Not because we worship the Bible, we don't, but because we worship the God who inspired the Bible. And we want to show in a tangible way that we stand alone under his authority and nobody else's. The other thing that I want to do is I want to go before that same very God today in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, I admit I'm, I'm overwhelmed today. I'm I'm overwhelmed by the, the movement of your spirit. Uh, Lord, in that, in that last song that we sang today, Lord, I, I pray that you would pour your spirit out. And Lord, I pray that you would wake us up to his presence this morning. God, I, I, I give you all, all of who I am. I, I give you all of my brokenness. Lord, I give you my nervousness. And I pray that you would take it and do something great with it. Lord, you, you are so awesome that we get the opportunity to come and to be able to worship you and to be able to read from the library that we call the Bible and, and grow in you and become more and more like your son, Jesus. God, you, you are good. Thank you so much for the presence of your Holy Spirit. Empty us of ourselves this morning. Lord, I pray that my words wouldn't be my own, but they would be from you. Lord, I'm reliant on you as, as all of us in this room are, and I pray that you would empty all of us of ourselves. And pray that by what happens in this space, that we would bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus and that it would change who we are. Lord, we do pray that you would pour your spirit out, even now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Well, I do love talking about the library that we call the Bible. It's one of my favorite topics of conversation And one of my other favorite topics of conversation is anytime anybody has a question about the faith, anytime anybody has a question about the faith, whatever that question is. And I'm so passionate about questions about our faith because it's a big part of my own story. You see, when I was growing up, I I started to have all kinds of questions, started to have all kinds of questions about my faith. and, And I was terrified to ask those questions. I was afraid that if I said them out loud, that it meant that for some reason that my faith inside was broken, that I didn't have the faith that I was supposed to have, or, or, or even worse, what if 
I asked questions and the questions that I asked would reveal a faith that was full of holes, that didn't have a strong foundation, that wasn't worth giving my life over to. And so I was terrified to ask those questions. And maybe you know exactly what I'm talking about. But when I went to college, I finally decided, you know what? If God's big enough for me to give my entire life over to, then he's absolutely big enough for me to ask my questions of. So I love it anytime anybody asks any question about the faith and put those two topics together, the library that we call the Bible and questions about our faith. When people ask questions about the Bible, man, I I absolutely love those conversations. They're some of my favorite to have. And one of the questions that I hear more often than any other when it comes to the library that we call the Bible, one of the things that I hear more people say, whether they're Christians or not Christians, when they're talking about the Bible is, why is God so mean in the Old Testament and nice in the New Testament? Why is God all about wrath and anger in the Old Testament and love and grace in the New Testament? Why is God all about humbling people in the Old Testament and rescuing people in the New Testament? Why? Why is the God of the Old Testament different, it seems, than the God of the New Testament? And like I said, it's not just Christians who ask this question. I've heard this from non-Christians as well. I was listening to a podcast several months ago from a guy that, as far as I know, is not a follower of Jesus. And and in talking about the Old Testament and particularly God in the Old Testament, he said, you know, you got to watch out for that Old Testament God. He's just waiting for you to mess up so that he can smite you down. Why is God seemingly different in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament? And as often as I've heard this question, as as often as I myself have asked this question, the more I read the Bible, the more I study scripture, the more I start to understand that that question has a lot more to do with our unfamiliarity of scripture than what actually is written down. Unfamiliarity in either that we haven't read it or what we have read, we don't understand. And that makes a lot of sense. It really does. Like we say every week here, when we talk about the library we call the Bible, that it's written by a number of different authors over a long period of time. And that's absolutely true. You see, the newest book that we have in the Old Testament was written about 2,500 years ago. The newest book written in the Old Testament was written about 2,500 years ago. Now think for just a moment, and how much our own culture has changed just within the last 25 years. Now imagine stretching that over 2,500 years. And though culture probably hasn't always changed at the same breakneck pace that we've seen it change in the last 25 years, it makes a lot of sense that 2,500 years ago would be a lot different than it is today. The culture would be different. The languages are absolutely different. The things that are normal, the things that are abnormal, the way that you convey messages, the way that you even tell stories would be so much different 2,500 years ago, written in a different place in a different time. And not only is it 2,500 years ago, it's literally written on the other side of our planet. 
So we step into a culture that is not our own at all. And because we don't spend nearly as much time reading the Old Testament as we do the New Testament, we think that maybe, maybe God is just different. He acts differently in the Old Testament than he does in the New Testament. But, but far from meaning that we shouldn't take the time and effort just because it's a little difficult to understand the Old Testament, far from meaning that we shouldn't spend some time, what it actually means is that if we just spend a little bit of time Digging. If we just spend a little bit of, under, of time understanding a culture that's not our own, understanding one of the other things that I love to say, the Bible wasn't written to you, it was preserved for you. And so we need to spend a little bit of time unearthing what was actually going on inside of the passage of scripture. And, and when we do that, I think we'll find a God that's a lot more consistent and a lot less schizophrenic. You see, we're going to be in Daniel chapter four today, a chapter in Daniel that I'm so incredibly excited to talk with you about because of several reasons. And one of those reasons is it shows us what God is like all the time and not just in the Old Testament and not just in the New Testament. You see, when we step into Daniel chapter four, remember that we're stepping into a book that's all about four friends, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And these four friends were alive during one of the most tumultuous times in all of Israel's history. They were alive right around 587 BC. And 587 BC was an incredibly difficult year for Israel. You see, Israel was in an agreement. They had a, a covenant with God. And inside of this covenant, God gave them specific rules and regulations. He said, hey, you know what? If you don't have any other gods but me, if you take care of the fatherless, the poor, the widowed among you, if you take care of the foreigner in your land, things are going to go well for you. Your, your, your crops will produce great food, fruit, food, that one of those F words, the good ones. <laughs> We're going to pretend that I didn't say that in church. <laughs> I'm not sure how to recover from that. All right, how about that? The preacher today. So anyway, so, so he said, hey, if, if you do what I tell you to, your crops are going to produce good food. If you, if you do what I tell you to, then you'll be ruled by me and you'll see that I'm a good God. I'm a good ruler. But if, but if you don't, then if you don't follow my commands, if you have other gods besides me, if you don't take care of the fatherless, the poor, the widowed, the foreigner among you, if you don't do those things, and things aren't going to go well for you, then, then your crops won't produce good fruit and you will be ruled by another. And after two centuries of disobedience, uh, of Israel spiraling down and down and down and down and they became less and less and less obedient to God, and after centuries of God sending prophet after prophet after prophet to tell the people of Israel, turn around from the way that you're going, turn around from the destruction that you're headed toward. After centuries of that, God finally said to Israel, I will hand you over to the desires of your heart. Rather than being ruled by me, you will be ruled by another. Because Israel was such an incredibly important piece of land, it was incredibly strategic in the ancient world, 
the, the superpower of the day, which was Babylon, sort of where modern day Iraq is, the superpower of Babylon, when it was coming to power, decided to march down to Jerusalem and in 587 BC would completely demolish the city of Jerusalem, would destroy the temple to God. But as swift, swift and decisive as they were in their destruction, they were also incredibly brilliant. They knew that as they had a growing empire that got bigger and bigger and bigger with every city that they conquered, they knew they needed more people to help them rule this growing empire. And they knew that the cities they were conquering had some pretty smart people in it. So they figured, well, why not? Why don't we just go into these cities? Why don't we take the best and the brightest? So they would take young men out of these cities of which Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were ones. They took them out of the city of Jerusalem before they ultimately destroyed it, brought them back to Babylon, where they would watch from Babylon as Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and probably ended up murdering a lot of their family members. And they would put them through cultural rehabilitation training at a young age. They would teach them all about Babylonian culture, all about Babylonian gods, all about the Babylonian language. They would even give them new Babylonian names. And so Daniel was named Belteshazzar. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were given three names that you might recognize a little bit more than their Hebrew names, and that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Daniel and his three friends did such a good job in this cultural rehabilitation training that they were given high positions in the Babylonian government. They were put in the service of the king who was in charge of all of this, the destruction of Jerusalem, the demolishing of the temple to God, the murdering of people inside of Jerusalem, King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar was, was a pretty arrogant guy who was incredibly full of himself and, and thought, you know what? I, I'm such a powerful guy. I'm the most powerful person in the world. And he actually mocked Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's God and said, your God can't save you from my hand because those four young men, they knew that they were in the mess they were in to begin with because they didn't follow God's commands because Israel as a nation had other gods than the one true God. They didn't follow God's commands and take care of other people the way that they were supposed to. And they said, you know what? We know that we're in the mess we're in to begin with because of that. So rather than being in step with Babylonian culture, we're gonna be out of step with it. We're not gonna worship other gods. We're not gonna live the way that they want us to live because we know that there is one way that we should live. And this King Nebuchadnezzar didn't like that. He wanted his, his high officials to do exactly what he said, when he said, how he said it. And so he would make even, even uh, new, new gods to try to unite the people. And we learned last week in chapter three that, that not only did he have such a problem, not only did he have such a problem with, with some of the things that they did, but he actually tried to kill Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they didn't worship the God that, Babylon, that King Nebuchadnezzar made. And so he, he threatened to throw them into a furnace, actually threw them into a fiery furnace to try to kill them because they didn't follow his orders and worship another God. And God miraculously saved them. But that very King Nebuchadnezzar is the one who oversaw all of this. And that information... All of that history is what makes verses one and two of chapter four some of the most shocking, amazing, and incredible verses in the entire library that we call the Bible. And I've been excited to share this with you all week. 
You see, in Daniel chapter four, starting in verse one, it says this, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the most high God has performed for me. Did you catch that? King Nebuchadnezzar, the very same King Nebuchadnezzar who had destroyed Jerusalem, demolished the temple, threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into a fiery furnace for not worshiping their, his gods. That same King Nebuchadnezzar is an author in the library that we call the Bible. Absolutely stunning. Absolutely stunning. And it's hard to imagine how shocking this would have been to an Israelite 2,400 years ago when they open up the book of Daniel and they read that King Nebuchadnezzar, the one who oversaw the destruction of Jerusalem, who oversaw the destruction of the temple, is an author in the library that we call the Bible. You see, to them, it would have sounded something like this sounds to us. Osama bin Laden, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that Jesus has performed for me. Now, we couldn't imagine that. This is how it would have sounded to an ancient Israelite, that King Nebuchadnezzar is an author in the library that we call the Bible. Now, how in the world did King Nebuchadnezzar get from somebody who was completely against God to all of, the sub, all of a sudden somebody who's writing something for God, who's telling all of the peoples of the known world at the time, which he ruled, who's telling all of those people all about the God that he had just one chapter earlier mocked? How in the world did he get there? Well, we find out that it has everything to do with a dream. You see, starting in verse 10, it says this. These are the visions that I saw. And this is King Nebuchadnezzar talking. These are the visions that I saw while lying in bed. I looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant. And on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. And so he sees this absolutely beautiful, absolutely stunning tree that gives protection and life to all of those around it. And in verse 13, he says, in the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree, cut that beautiful tree, trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. So this beautiful tree gets cut down. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, I would venture to say that if almost any of us in this room had this dream in the middle of the night, 
we would go downstairs, we would open up our medicine cabinet and we would get the bottle of Tums. We would take three, four or five of them and swear that we would never eat any more spicy food before we go to bed again. And then we would try to fall back asleep. But King Nebuchadnezzar, he lived in Babylon 2,500 years ago. And dreams were incredibly important in that culture. They were incredibly significant in that culture. So he picks up his cell phone 2,500 years ago, picks up his cell phone, and he calls up Daniel because he knew that Daniel had a knack for being able to interpret dreams. He's, King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream already. We run into this previously in Daniel. He's had a dream, he had a vision, and he needed somebody who would tell him what the dream was so he could make sure they were actually telling the truth and to interpret the dream. And he got Daniel to actually do that for him. And so King Nebuchadnezzar knew that there was something about Daniel. He knew that there was something special about him and said, hey, Daniel, come over to the palace and tell me what in the world is going on with this dream. And so Daniel comes over. Remember, his Babylonian name is Belteshazzar, if you see that in the verses that we're skipping over. So he calls up Daniel, and he says, hey, tell me, tell me what this means. Interpret it for me. And in verse 24, Daniel says this to King Nebuchadnezzar. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree. The Most High is issued against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from people, and you will live with wild animals. You will lose your mind. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And seven times there probably just simply means a long period of time until it reaches its finishing point, until it's concluded. So seven times will pass by for you. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your prosperity will continue. What Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar is God is going to humble you. He's going to humble you. He's going to strip you of your power. He's going to, going to make you lose your mind. You're going to live in the wild and eat grass like an ox. And you're going to be out there for a while. So knowing this, King, knowing that God is going to humble you, I implore you, turn away from your sin. Don't live the way that you've been living. Don't be that same arrogant King that we've seen throughout the rest of the book of Daniel. Instead, turn towards the one true God. Recognize that you're under his authority, not under your own. Be kind to the oppressed. Live the way that I have called you to live. And so is this why King Nebuchadnezzar became an author in the library that we call the Bible? Did this dream simply scare him straight? Well, as we're reading, we find out. In verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty hand or my, my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Doesn't sound at all like somebody who is humble. Instead, sounds very much like the same King Nebuchadnezzar we've met through the rest of the book of Daniel. And even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. 
This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle. That means his hair started to get matted and long because he was out in the wild for so long, living outside. And his nails grew like the claws of a bird, again, because he's out in the wild, not taking care of himself, loses his mind. And I love this next part. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, is somebody who had looked down on everything else around him. All of a sudden, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored when he recognized that he had been humbled and when he became humbled and looked up instead of down. His sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And remember, this is King Nebuchadnezzar, the one who had destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, threatened to kill all kinds of people if they didn't follow his gods. That same guy is saying all of this. At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before in my favorite verse. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble absolutely love this story. I I love this story for so many reasons. I love that King Nebuchadnezzar became an, an, an author in the library that we call the Bible and all the implications that that has. I love that he became an author. I also love that, that King Nebuchadnezzar actually humbled himself, got, that, God, that God humbled him. And King Nebuchadnezzar actually went from being somebody who looked down on everything to all of a sudden looking up to the one true God and all of the implications that that has. But, but probably more than any of that, one of my favorite things about this passage is that if there was one person If there was one person in the entire library that we call the Bible that we could give God a pass on smiting, if there was one guy in the entire library that we call the Bible that we would say, God, it's okay that you kind of knocked that one out, it would have been King Nebuchadnezzar. We would have said, you know what, God, you're justified in that response if you were to simply smite King Nebuchadnezzar. But that's not what God did. Yeah, God absolutely humbled him, but God didn't humble him because he gets his kicks and jollies from humbling people. God humbled King Nebuchadnezzar so that he could rescue him, so that King Nebuchadnezzar would be somebody who sees and recognizes the power and the majesty of the one true God, and he could be a follower of him. And in the same way that we know that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of the other characters that we know that put their trust in God in the Old Testament, Moses, in the same way that we know that they are going to be in eternity, that Jesus' blood even covers them because they trust in the promise that is to come, 
or that was to come for them, I wholeheartedly believe that for everybody who calls themselves a follower of Jesus, that when we get to eternity, that one of the people we will be able to run into is King Nebuchadnezzar, the man who had railed against God, who had destroyed the temple, who had destroyed the city of Jerusalem and threatened people with their lives if they didn't follow his God. And I'm absolutely stunned that that's the kind of character and heart that God has that he wouldn't just simply wipe Nebuchadnezzar out, but instead would seek to rescue him. And when I step back from all of that, I can't help but realize this. God will humble your today to rescue your tomorrow. God will humble your today to rescue your tomorrow. And did you notice where we learn this from? We learn this from the Old Testament. You see, God's grace isn't a New Testament concept. It's part of God's character. It's part of who God is. And when we look carefully, when we understand what it is that we're reading inside of the library that we call the Bible, we see pictures of God's grace throughout the entire thing. God will humble your today to rescue your tomorrow. You see, we learn in Ezekiel chapter 18 that that God takes no pleasure. Again, the Old Testament, God takes no pleasure. God takes no pleasure in punishing the wicked. Belongs for everybody to turn toward him. God takes no pleasure in humbling the wicked, but longs for everybody to turn towards him. You see, God doesn't humble people in the Old Testament or in the New Testament because he does it there too. God doesn't humble people because he doesn't care about them or that's how he gets his kicks. No, God humbles them because he wants to restore them and rescue them. And don't get me wrong, God will step in when he needs to, but he does it out of a heart of wanting to save and rescue and redeem all of his creation. God will humble your today to rescue your tomorrow. As we see this consistently throughout the entire library that we call the Bible, Jacob, somebody who was a liar, a deceiver, stole the blessing that his older brother was supposed to have. God humbled him so that he could rescue him. And he became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Nineveh, the town that the book of Jonah is all about, a people who would eventually destroy, they would destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. That very same group of people, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, God sent Jonah to humble them so that he could rescue them and the entire city turned towards God. God will humble your today to rescue your tomorrow. King Nebuchadnezzar, God will humble your today to rescue your tomorrow. And it continues into the New Testament. Peter, somebody who denied Jesus three times, after Jesus returned, after being resurrected from the dead, he goes and has a meal with his disciples. And he asked Peter, Peter denied him three times. And he says to Peter three times, do you love me? Drawing to Peter's mind, humility that he needed. God will humble your today to rescue your tomorrow. And Peter becomes the rock on which God would build his church. Paul, persecutor of Christians. God would humble him on the road to Damascus blind him and tell him, why are you persecuting me? 
to rescue his tomorrow because that very same Paul would become the author of not just a chapter, but 13 books in the library that we call the Bible. God will humble your today to rescue your tomorrow. And so I've got to ask you, where, where is it for you that you might recognize, hey, you know what? God's, God's been humbling me. God's been humbling me. And you might say, hey, you know what? I, I've been upset with him. I've been upset at everybody else. Not, re not recognizing that what God is doing is trying to get me to see that I need to stop looking down on everybody else and start looking up towards him. It's one of the reasons why recovering alcoholics are some of my favorite people in the world. They recognized the reality that they needed to be humbled, that they needed to hit rock bottom and they needed to look up and find help in the only one in this entire universe that could give it to them. And they recognize that their life has been rescued from the pits of hell. God will rescue your today or humble your today to rescue your tomorrow. So is God humbling your today and you need to say, hey, I need to stop fighting him and realizing that he wants to save me. Or maybe you might say, hey, I haven't reached that point yet where God is humbling me, but in the same way that Daniel said to King Nebuchadnezzar, look out because God is going to humble you. Maybe this message today is a warning like that for you. Maybe you've started to walk down that direction. Maybe you've started to take a step away from your marriage and that you've been more concerned with your own needs than with the needs of your spouses. And instead of fighting for what we like to call around here a beautiful marriage, you've taken a step towards one that's not beautiful. And if you continue down that road, it will continue to get worse and worse and worse. And I just want to encourage you today, don't walk down that road. Instead, turn around so that you don't have to be humbled. Maybe it's with your marriage. Maybe it's with the way that you're treating your kids. Maybe it's the way that you're interacting with other people. Maybe it's gossip. Whatever it is, turn around. Don't go through what God will bring you through if he needs to. God will humble you today to rescue your tomorrow. Or, or perhaps, perhaps more than any of this, you just simply needed to hear today that God's character is consistent. That God's not schizophrenic. That the same God of the New Testament who showed grace through the person of Jesus is the same God of the Old Testament who showed grace to King Nebuchadnezzar. I know that for me, many times in my life, I've thought that God was just hiding around a corner waiting for me to mess up because he didn't really want to be around me anyway. And for every single one of us in this room, if God will take somebody like King Nebuchadnezzar and God will take the time and the energy and the effort and his resources to reach out to that man, to rescue him, how much more does he want to reach out to every single one of us in this place and beyond this place? God will humble your today to rescue your tomorrow. And what we see started in the Old Testament with the person of King Nebuchadnezzar and before, long before, we see that character and that consistency in God, which reaches its climax in the person of Jesus. Jesus who humbled 
himself. And guess what? He didn't need to because he was perfect. But he still humbled himself on a cross and was crucified for us. He was resurrected again on the third day, defeating all of sin and death so that he could rescue us from that very fate. God will humble your today to rescue your tomorrow. May we all recognize that consistency in God's character and live it out in our life, even today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a good God. Lord, thank you that you humble us. And Lord, it's not easy to be humbled. It's difficult, it's hard, and it hurts. But Lord, you know what's best for us. And if it takes that to get us to you rescuing us, then God, humble us. Humble me. Humble every single person in this room. Humble every single person who's connecting with us online. Do what you need to to rescue us. And Lord, thank you that you are that kind of God, that you are consistent from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And thank you that that is the same very God that we worship to this day. We love you, praise you. We give you all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.